to go over to Children's Church right now and follow my screaming son out the door. Patrick's going to lead them over. He's right over here. let's pray together. Lord, we come before you. We thank you that we can meet and worship together this morning without the threat of harm or violence, Lord. We know that's not the case with so many believers in this world who are under threat because of their love for you and their willingness to meet and fellowship, teach the word, receive the word, Lord. We pray that you would sustain those brothers and sisters around the world. Encourage them, Lord. Pray that the gospel would go forth in a mighty way in spite of the hurdles and the various things that uh, man would do to, to keep that from happening, Lord. And we thank you that uh, you have graciously extended salvation to us. We pray that our lives would um, reflect the mightiness, the compassion, the glory, the love of Christ, Lord. And we pray that we would live lives that uh, respond appropriately to that love, to that grace, as we extend it to others and seek to imitate Christ in those things that we do and say, we pray that your spirit would work in our lives in a deep way, that we would become more and more like you. We pray that this church would be a beacon of light, Lord, in a dark world. And we pray that the effect of the gospel would be seen by those who see us, those who join us. Lord, we pray that we would be a people of reconciliation in this church, uh, that, our, that those who are around us would know that we are Christians by our love for each other, for you, for the world. We pray for those who are suffering in our community in our church, Lord, whether it's um, health, whether it's financial, whether it's other things going on, Lord, I pray that you would work in a mighty way, that your peace would reach deep into their lives, Lord, that uh, their lives would be a testimony of the way that you work through very difficult circumstances for our good and for your glory. We pray that this morning our hearts would be attuned to the things that you would have for us, Lord, as Sammy brings the word. We pray that um, we would be encouraged. We pray that you would be glorified. And above all else, we just pray that uh, our hearts would be changed toward you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Sorry, I'm going to give a brief introduction here. <laughs> Sammy Rhodes, some of you may remember, has uh, preached here before when he was with Georgia Southern, and uh, he is now with University of South Carolina as RUF minister there, and um, he's married, has four, four kids, and uh, so if you would, welcome Sammy this morning. Well, thank you guys so much for letting me be here this morning. 
Um, I'm really bad at introductions, so let's just dive into our passage. Um, What I want to do this morning is look at uh, a psalm that is near to my heart, and um, I want it, hopefully after this, if it's not already near uh, to your heart, I hope it will be. Um, A lot of you are like me, and you're a very guilt-driven person. Um, Even if if you've done nothing wrong, you still feel guilty uh, for something, something you said, something you thought, something you did. And so the question we're asking this morning is, what do you do with your guilt? And I think what we have in Psalm 32 is, is David has done something with Bathsheba for which he ought to feel uh, the guilt of, of his sin. But what I want us to see this morning is what he does with it. And so what I want to do is read Psalm 32. We'll read all of it. And we're asking the question, what do you do with your guilt? And what I hope is going to happen this morning is you see that God is a God that meets the guilty with his grace. So Psalm 32, I'll read all of it for us. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer." I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my son. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble, and you surround me. I love this image. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let's pray one more time, and then I want to dive into this psalm together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that uh, for me and for my friends this morning, that it would be more precious than silver and gold, that it would be sweeter to our souls than honey. Lord, I pray that you would open your word to us and that you would show us, uh, even as uh, from of old, uh, from your Uh, Dear one, David, the grace that you have uh, for the guilty. Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us. Uh, You alone can teach us and teach our hearts and bring the gospel uh, home to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, that you would do that and be pleased to do that this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, I always hate the question, and maybe you can relate to this, but when someone asks me, so what are your hobbies? I always feel like the lamest person in the world because I don't really have hobbies unless you consider Netflix a hobby. Um, I'm not really, in a, you know, I say to my students all the time that I am, instead of an outdoorsman, I am an avid indoorsman. Um, and, but one of my hobbies that I guess you could call a hobby is uh, music. Uh, from, from a long, from as young as I can remember, music has always kind of been something that I'm really interested in and into. And I remember the first mixtape. Um, yes, I am old enough to remember mixtapes that my dad uh, made me. Uh, I remember on the, on the one side was um, a Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever, which is still a fantastic album. 
And then the other side was uh, kind of, I think, a collection of some of his favorite Billy Joel songs. And there was this one Billy Joel song that I used to love and that I'll never forget one of the lines. It was called, Only the Good Die Young. And there's that line where he says toward the end, I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints. And I remember as like a 10 or 11-year-old thinking, oh, that's, that's interesting. Um, but what's interesting in this passage is David is almost saying the exact opposite. That joy, life is found in crying with the saints. In particular, over crying over the brokenness uh, that Jonathan mentioned, the, the brokenness of our own sin and the brokenness of our guilt before the Lord. But what I want to do is really, there are two things I think David gives to us in this psalm that show us what do, we, what do we do with that guilt. And I think there are kind of two things he tells us that I just want to look at this morning. On the one hand, uh, if we're ever going to get to a place where we experience the joy of the gospel that we're all so hungry for, that's why I, that's why I watch hours of Netflix, I'm, I'm hungry for something. And I think what I'm hungry for is the grace and the joy of, of the gospel. So the first thing that he's going to teach us is that we are called to admit, admitting the guilt of our sin. And then the second thing is accepting the grace uh, of God's forgiveness. So first, admitting the guilt of our sin. And that's the first thing that's so fascinating to me about this psalm is that that's what David does. Is he admits or he confesses or he gets real honest about his brokenness. And what's fascinating is he actually does it using, it's almost like he's, he uses every word in the Hebrew, which was his native tongue, that he can find to describe himself and who he is and his brokenness. And it's interesting because the psalm, he uses four words we're going to look at that, that he's using to describe his sin or he's using to describe himself as a sinner. So four words that he uses, and here's the first. It's that word in the ESV, transgression. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means a willful or deliberate rebellion. And so another place it's used is the Lord uses it, interestingly, in Isaiah 1-2. And he says this about his people. He says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. That's a theme in Scripture that God uses often. He calls his people his children, but they're rebellious children. So I like to think about it this way. What is the most rebellious thing that you ever did as a child or as a teenager toward your parents? For me, it's pretty easy. I was actually talking to, to Scott, one of my students right up with me. We're, we're actually talking about this morning. Is one of the most, you talk about one of the most rebellious things you've ever done. And for me, what I always think about is I'm, I'm a seventh grader, and my parents are undergoing this really a nasty divorce, and I'm angry. Um, I'm very, very angry all of the time. And my mom, my, my sweet mom, who was kind of the innocent party that we still, me and my sister uh, lived with her, she was trying her best. She was in counseling, and my sister was in counseling, and she was trying her best to get her 13-year-old son in counseling, and I was having none of it. And she would say, all right, Sammy, she finally put her foot down. She said, Sammy, we are going. Today is the day you and I are going to go see the Christian counselor. And I remember I reached into my closet, and I grabbed an Easton baseball bat, and I, threw, I held it up like this, and I said, I'm not going anywhere. And she was weeping, and I was shaking with anger. And when I think about that, I think that's just a small picture of how you and I have been toward the Lord. Where there are moments in our hearts where we said, you are not telling me what to do. I will do my own thing, thank you very much. 
And that's what David says. He says, Lord, I've had a rebellious heart against you. Part of my brokenness is instead of being an obedient, loving child, I've been a rebellious child who thinks I'm smarter, who thinks I can go my own way and things will go better. So first, transgression. But then, then he uses another word to talk about himself and his brokenness, and it's the word sin. You see it there again in verse 1. Now, interestingly, the, the word he uses in the Hebrew simply means to, to miss the mark or to fall short. So for those of us who grew up in the church, and maybe you did the whole Romans road sort of to salvation, uh, we, you know Romans 3.23, where Paul literally says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And what's interesting is just to think about that for a minute. What does he mean by that we've fallen short? And I think what he's saying is we're, we've fallen short of what we were meant to be. So for me, I've fallen short as a son. I've fallen short as a husband. I've fallen short as a father. I have four kids. Uh, It's about two too many. (laughs) Uh, That's a total joke. Um, I have a good friend. A good friend says I'm a two. I'm a two kid parent with. uh, I'm a two kid parent with four kids um, because God loves me and He wants me to depend on Him. I've fallen short as a friend. I've fallen short as an employee. I've fallen short as you name it. And you have too. In other words, you're, you're not the person you're supposed to be. And you can look at your life and say, I'm not. There's a disconnect between the person, between the person I'm supposed to be made by God for God, to love him, to be a leader, to be a lover. And yet this is where I am. And David is saying that. And it's interesting in David's case, right? David, you know the story. David's supposed to be the king. And if you know the story with Bathsheba, he's supposed to be off at battle with his, his people. And it's interesting, I didn't realize this until recently. I was reading this chapter, and Vaughn Roberts got this incredible book. If you've never read of Vaughn Roberts, he's got this book called Battles Christians Face. It is fantastic. But in his chapter on lust, he's talking about the David story, and he says, it's interesting, this, the middle of the day, David's in his bed, he goes to the window. Could it be that David often went to the window just to lust? This wasn't, you know, when we think about the Bathsheba story, I think we often think, Oh, he's just standing there and he happens to see Bathsheba. Could it have been the case that David often went to the window to try to sneak a peek of different ladies? Very, very possible. But he's not being the king he's supposed to be. He's not being the man of God he's supposed to be. He's fallen short. And David, is, he's, he's confessing that. He's saying, Lord, I am not, I have fallen short of who I'm supposed to be. So first, transgression. Second, Simon, he's got two more words, the third of which is iniquity. You see it in verse 2. He says this, in the Hebrew it literally means, iniquity means to be twisted or bent out of shape. To be twisted or bent out of shape. So again, the Lord in Ezekiel 16 is talking about his people and this is what he says. He says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. And my students would say about this, that's messed up. There's something messed up about that here, here are God's people and they have, you know, they have all of these riches and yet they care nothing for the poor. They care nothing for those who have less to, or next to nothing. And David is saying, that's been me. There's something twisted in me. It's interesting. Luther used to say that, that we're, instead of being twisted outward, instead of being bent outward in love to God and in love to one another, love to neighbor, 
that what sin has done to us is it's curved us in in ourselves. So that I like to say sometimes that, you know, I used to love X-Men growing up. I used to say, I've got a superpower, and my superpower is the ability to make anything and everything about me. And you have that superpower too. We could be like the selfish X-Men, like, right? So we could, we are turned in on ourselves because we love ourselves. Instead of loving God and one another, we love ourselves. And David is saying that. Um, there, there's a, I don't know if you've read much C.S. Lewis before, but um, I'm a C.S. Lewis nerd. And Narnia is my jam, but I've also read a lot of, um, or I tried to read, I should say, his, uh, his space trilogy. Not as easy for me to read. Uh, if you love the space trilogy, I, that's great. Um, that means you are like the super nerd of C.S. Lewis. But I tried to read the first one, and there was a fascinating uh, illustration that I, that's always helped me thinking about this, that in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, where you remember when the, uh, if you've read it or if you haven't read it, so basically the story is these two men who are full of greed, they make their way to this, plan, this other planet, and they're kind of trying to figure out how they can basically take advantage of the resources of this planet, take it back to Earth, and become these really rich. That's kind of the, the Cliff's Notes version. And, uh, but they're called at one point before this being Oyarsa. And uh, Oyarsa, he realizes what these men are doing, and there's this place where he says about them, this line from Lewis that I love, is he says, there's a bentness in the human race. There's a bentness. And David is saying that, and you and I can say that. There's a bentness in me. Something's not right. Uh, and David is, is bringing that brokenness before the Lord. And then the last word he uses is this word deceit. You see it there again in verse 2. Simply in the Hebrew, it means duplicity, dishonesty, or pretense. Um, the Lord says in Psalm 101.7, No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. In other words, David is saying what is so often the case as a campus minister that I see in my students, and what is so often the case in my own life as just a, a Christian is this, this temptation to live a double life. Where, you know, from a very early age for me, you know, I grew up in a Southern family, so we Southerners are really good at this. Where sort of like, and the one, you have the public Sammy, and then you've got the private Sammy. You've got the Sammy who's out, you know, being very nice and polite and respectful, and then you've got the Sammy at home who's like his, you could talk to my wife, she could tell you lots of stories about how much, you know, the, the disconnect is, right? I like the way Chris Rock says it, if you ever listen to him, where he says, when you're meeting me for the first time, you're not meeting the real me, you're meeting my representative. <laughs> and that's really true, where it's the sense in which we do this thing where we, there we have two lives, where here's the, the way we want people to see us, and here's who we really are. That's why we, this is why, for us, Facebook and Twitter can be so dangerous, because we can kind of craft this image of what we, how we want others to see us, and yet it's not really who we are. Um, uh, Brendan Manning, who apparently recently just died on this past uh, weekend, which I did not know, but he has this great quote where he says, the temptation of the age is to look good without actually being good. And that's the temptation for you and for me, is to actually put on, to craft or create this image that's disconnected from who we really are before God. And David is confessing that. He's saying, Lord, I've done, there's been deceit. Not only have I been deceived by my sin, which sin always does, by the way. As one pastor put it, sin always overpromises and underdelivers, which is so true. I've been, and we're deceived by that, how that works. But I've also lived this double life. I've been one person in public and another person 
in private. And he takes all of this and he's confessing it and bringing it to the Lord. And what's interesting is we could say it like this, is David is really doing, he's taking every word he can find in his language to say simply one thing. And it's that, I, that I'm broken. That I am broken in a way where I cannot put myself back together. This is the first piece of the gospel, is to know that you're so broken that you can't do anything about it. And you need someone else to come and do something for you. And that's where David is. Uh, four things to say, four words to say, one thing, I'm broken, I'm a sinner. I like to think about it like this. If you saw Les Mis or if you've ever read Les Mis, this is why I love the scene where Jean Valjean, um, and I'm not going to sing it for us because that would be <laughs> incredibly awkward. But the scene where he does the who am I uh, bit, you remember, this, you remember Les Mis? Maybe you saw it recently this, this Christmas. But, um, so it's the scene where, in the book at least, where Valjean has found out that Javert has captured this other guy that he thinks is Valjean, and Valjean hears about it and knows he's the real Valjean who's, who's, who has the guilt. And so he, he's wrestling, what should I do? Should I, do I go to the court and really turn myself in, or do I kind of keep living this life, this good life that I'm living now? Because you remember he experienced the grace of the priest with the candlesticks where he, he spent the night with the, uh, with the priest in his house, and he steals the candlesticks and, and the priest. And the, a remarkable, the first place in, in, in Valjean's life where he probably ever experienced grace, and it really does change him. And he's a changed man. He's living this righteous life now. And yet he's wrestling. Do I continue living this righteous life or do I go and, and reveal the reality of who I am in my past? And, and so he has a song, and I'm going to read it for us. And he says this. He says, who am I? Can I conceal myself forevermore? Pretend I'm not the man I was before? And must my name until I die be no more than an alibi? Must I lie? How can I ever face my fellow men? How can I ever face myself again? My soul belongs to God, I know. I made that bargain long ago. He gave me hope when hope was gone. He gave me strength to carry on. Who am I? And in the scene in the book, he reveals himself to the court. He begins unbuttoning his shirt. He says, who am I? Who am I? I'm Jean Valjean. And then he reveals his shirt to reveal the prison numbers 24601. This is the only tattoo I've ever wanted. (laughs) I'm not a tattoo guy. I don't think I could pull it off, but 24601, because he's saying, I am a broken sinner before God. And the question for you is, have you ever had any moment like that before God, where you went and you confessed your brokenness, the particulars? See, what's interesting is you and I sometimes, especially if you've grown up and you know all the language, you know, the danger of going to seminary is I know lots of stuff, but there's this gap between what I know and what I live. And yet, and I love the way the confession says it, that we're called to repent particularly of our particular sins. And I think the thing for me and for you is that it's easy on the one hand to say I'm a sinner in general, and yet David's brokenness here is so specific. Here is the place, and I think if you're like me, sometimes you hate the ways in which you are particularly broken. Lord, could I struggle with anything but that, and yet this is what I struggle with. And that's what I'm talking about. Have you ever taken that? Are you aware of that? Do you even know what that is? And if you do know what it is, have you ever taken it before the Lord and just confessed it and brought it to him and say, Lord, here I am in all of my brokenness? So first, he's, he, we're, so if we're ever going to, live 
guilt-free, joyful lives, we've got to admit the guilt of our sin. But what I love is David doesn't leave us here. As David takes the guilt of his sin and he brings it and he spreads it before the Lord. And it's interesting is, I wonder what you think God, how God's going to respond to it. You know, after you've really messed it up and you know you've messed it up and your eyes, like Peter's, meet the Lord's eyes after he knows he's really messed it up, what do you think the Lord's eyes toward you are like? And David says, he shows us what God is like. Because what I love about this psalm is that David has four words, but God has four words too. And God's four words meet David's with incredible and remarkable grace. So look what God does. Here's the first one. He forgives David's transgression. He sees David's transgression for all that it is, and yet he forgives it. Literally, in the Hebrew, it means to remove or carry it away. That's why we love, that's why Psalm 103 is one of my favorite psalms. When the Lord says, as far as the east is from the west, so far does the Lord remove our transgressions from us. And it's interesting is, is I wonder if that's your view of who God is. You know, it's funny is sometimes a lot of my students have read the Harry Potter series. And, you know, a lot of times I think, a lot of them, as I talk to them, think that the Lord is more similar to, like, Voldemort than he is to, like, the father in Luke 15. Voldemort, who's sort of concerned for the glory of his name and willing to sort of use people just to, you know, sort of this, he's powerful, but he's either distant or he's sort of got this weird kind of control freak thing going on. Versus the father in Luke 15, who when the son has really messed it up and he comes home, the father, you know the story, he runs to him, he embraces him, and Spurgeon says, I love, he's got a great sermon in Luke 15 where he says he kisses him with the kisses of grace over and over and over and over again. It's a sense in which we could say, you know, when we, when we say, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them all and thousands more but Jehovah knoweth none. Why? Because he has forgiven them. He has removed them. He does not hold them over us like you and I do. You know, it's funny. My friends have a nickname for me that's Pammy, and it stands for passive-aggressive Sammy, which means basically what I do is if you've wronged me, I won't say anything then, but about a year or a couple months from then, I'll bring it back up to you in a very passive-aggressive way. That's not how the Lord is. He doesn't hold things over us. He, he forgives our transgression. But then second, he covers David's sin. Literally in the Hebrew, it means he conceals or provides for David's sin. Uh, there's a, a sweet promise at the end of Micah 7 uh, that maybe you've, I don't know if you've ever heard it before, but the Lord is talking about his people's sin. And he says this, he says, I will tread or he is, they're talking about God, and he says, He will tread our iniquities underfoot, and you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. In other words, the Lord not only removes them, but another image to, to, to talk about forgiveness is that he covers. He, he, he tramples them so that they're nothing. He, removes, he takes them to the very, very depths of the sea. This is why, part of why, it was, so we did five years. Last time I was here, I was actually, we lived in Statesboro, Georgia, and um. And part of what I've loved about being back in South Carolina, where I grew up, is it's nice to be back where you grew up because you kind of know all the back roads. And, um, 
and it's nice to know the back roads. And so there's this back road between my hometown and Columbia that I go all the time. It's called Screaming Eagle Road. The best part of, of that road is uh, you, there's really not, no, no cops or anything, so you can kind of go at your own pace, which is why it's a little faster. But the downside is, is there's this huge uh, landfill that's, uh, that you have to pass by. And as soon as you kind of get even anywhere close to this landfill, it doesn't matter if you've got your air like switched, where you know sometimes you can switch your air from fresh air to recycled air. So you can switch it to recycled air. It doesn't matter, though. As soon as you're about five minutes from this landfill, you can start smelling it, and it's terrible. And every time I pass it, though, I think about that. What is a landfill? It's this place where we take all of our junk, we take all of our trash, and it's just covered over. And every time I pass it, I think, okay, that's a small image of what the Lord has done with our sin, is he's covered it, but he's covered it in such a way where you and I are actually covered with the righteous robes of Jesus, where Jesus is the one who not only died the death that you and I deserve to die, but he lived the life that you and I deserve to live. And that's why I've always loved that, that, that passage in Paul where he says we actually have the aroma of the gospel, that the Lord has so covered our sin that we now have the aroma of Christ to him and to the world. And it's a beautiful, a beautiful picture of his grace to us. So first, he forgives David's transgression. Second, he covers his sin. Then third, he does not count his iniquity. He doesn't count it. Um, in other words, he doesn't keep a record of it. In other words, he doesn't. Some of us think he's keeping a ledger. So here, are the, this is how a lot of us live, by the way, where on this one hand, I've got the ledger of the good things that I'm doing, and the other hand is the ledger of the bad things I'm doing wrong. And I think a lot of us think that's how the Lord, you know, he sort of weighs the books at the end of the day, like, okay, you got one more over here, so you get grace for today. And that's not how the Lord is. That's why I love when Jerry Bridges says, you know, on your best day, uh, your, your best day is never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And your worst day is never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But when David says he does not count our iniquity, he's saying, you know, like he says in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand before you? Who could stand before you? And the beauty of the gospel is that he doesn't. That he doesn't count our iniquities against us. I love the way, again, back to the Vaughn Roberts book, he has an illustration that helped me tremendously with this. And maybe you've heard it before, but he says, imagine you have died and you've gone up to the gates of heaven and you're sitting here and here's the Lord sort of on a stand and an angel comes and he opens the book and he re- starts reading from this big, thick book. And as he's reading from the book, he began, you begin noticing this is your life. And he's reading from, from birth all the way through to your death, all of the bad, ugly parts of your life, all of the things you have thought and done. And as he's reading it, you just are cringing and you're cringing and you're cringing. And then the Lord asked, okay, whose name is on the cover of that book? And the angel says, the name and the cover of that book is Jesus Christ. And then the angel has another book, and he opens it and begins reading it, and it's, it's the life of this perfect man who's never, never sinned, this life of, of full of love and of good deeds and of everything. And, and the angel begins reading it, and you're like, oh, that's beautiful, but that's not me. And then the, and the Lord says, okay, whose name is on the cover of that book? And he says, Sammy Rhodes. And he says, your name. And that's what David is saying. He does not count our iniquities, but instead he gives us the righteousness of Jesus. He, can't, he did count our iniquities against Jesus. That's what the cross is. As he took 
all of my sins. He took all of your sins and he counted them not against you or me, but he counted them against Jesus. And yet, he takes all of the good deeds and the love and the righteousness of Jesus and he counts it toward you and me as if we had never sinned, as if we had lived the perfect life. And that's what David is saying. And then the fourthly, so not only does he forgive transgression, cover sin, doesn't count iniquity, but then fourthly, he gives David a right spirit instead of a spirit of deceit. In other words, he gives them, it's sort of, if you think about like a spiritual LASIK of the soul, as he enables them to begin to see, see things clearly and to admit things honestly and to get real sincere and get real honest before the Lord. That's why David says in Psalm 51, the other psalm, the companion psalm to this one where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Why? Because I know myself so well that I know not only am I prone to being deceived, but I know that I'm prone to lying to, to, lying to myself. I'm prone to not see things rightly. I'm prone to not even see the places that are so broken that I need Jesus. I'm so prone to be so wrapped up in myself that I need you to come and create a clean heart that I might even begin to be honest before you. Another way of saying it is, is so if David has four words to say one thing, I'm broken, I'm a sinful man. God has four words to say one thing, and it's this, is I have grace for the broken. I have grace for the guilty. And my grace is always greater than your sin. If you don't hear anything else this morning, this is what I want you to hear, is that God's grace, he says, is always greater than your sin. Um, I love the way Sinclair Ferguson says it. He says, there's always more grace in the Lord Jesus than there is sin in you. There's always more grace in the Lord Jesus than there is sin in you. I'll close with this. Uh, so I mentioned we have four kids and we love Netflix. Sometimes I think to myself, what did parents do with their kids before Netflix? Because our kids watch a lot of it. And um, one of the things we do a lot is we watch a lot of movies. And one movie that we started watching about four years ago that's become one of my absolute favorites is a movie called The Iron Giant. And some of you might have seen it, but it's just, it's been a, a, it's become literally one of my favorite kind of top 10 movies. And uh, so it's a movie, if you've never seen it before, it's set in the 60s in the height of the, cold, the kind of Cold War between Russia and the U.S. And there's this little boy who's grown up with a single mom, and he's trying to find his way, and he didn't really have any friends. And through this strange circumstance, this iron giant from kind of space crashes near where the boy lives, and the boy discovers him. And in this kind of strange turn of events, this iron giant and this boy become great friends. But the problem is that the U.S. military has learned, been, there have been reports that there's some kind of giant that's been around this town, and so they send an agent to come check it out. And as the agent's trying to figure out what this giant is, they're pretty sure that this giant must be some kind of Russian spy. So they kind of start this hunt to find this giant, and finally this agent gets entire mil- this entire military force to track down and find the giant. And toward the end of the movie, the very climax, they found the giant, and this whole fleet of military vehicles is chasing them into this heart of the town square. And all the people have kind of gathered around as they're trying to capture this giant. And this one agent who's kind of just crazy and just out for blood, without thinking as they're trying to decide how to get this giant and what to do with him, without thinking he fires off this missile, this nuclear missile, and the missile kind of is going into the air, and everyone realizes what's about to happen is even as this missile comes back down and destroys the giant, it's going to destroy everyone in the town. 
And so as the missile's in the air, the giant realizes, he looks at the missile and he looks at the, the little boy, his friend, and he looks at the, these people of the town and the giant flies up into space and the giant takes the missile and he brings it back and just before he brings it back to explode on himself, he smiles and then he, he smiles and then he takes the missile and he explodes into a, a million pieces and every time my kids and I watch that, I'm like, we, I'm like weeping. And my kids are like, Daddy, what's wrong? And, I'm, and I just keep thinking, that's Jesus. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus has done for you and for me. As he's taking the judgment and the condemnation that you and I deserve, and he's taking it, he's taken it to himself, that you and I might live that you and I might be not, not be guilt-driven because the Lord says there is therefore now no condemnation if anyone is in Christ, but that you and I might be grace-driven to know that the Lord smiles over us even as he knows the worst about us. That's why I love Hebrews 12. For the joy set before him, the Lord Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame. And I love to ask the question, what was that joy? And that joy was you. And that joy was me. I love the way the old poet George Herbert said it. When he said this, he said, Grace divine, that my God felt as blood, but I as wine. It's the grace of the gospel. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that, um, that you would take the truths of your word and bring them yet further home to our hearts, even as we leave this place. We thank you for the chance to be together this morning and to, to reflect on not only Psalm 32, but to reflect on uh, the grace that you have shown us uh, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. from 